Hey there, conductors. If you've ever felt that you're not quite sure what to do next when you're studying a score, maybe you don't even know where to start with a difficult piece. Maybe you study one piece too much and then you realize at the first rehearsal that you don't know another one well enough. Or maybe you're a new conductor and you don't know what score study is. I'm excited to share that I'm finally publishing and sharing my score study checklist. I've been refining this for 12 years now, and I'm so excited to share it. It is going to walk you through my structure, my process to make sure that I learn every score that I need to learn well enough and so that nothing falls through the cracks. So it covers everything that you need to know. There's a link in the show notes. Go ahead and click it, sign up, and you'll get that score study checklist sent right to your email. You'll also get access to an eight-minute video of me explaining what each section is and how I use it to organize all the music that I need to learn. It's only eight minutes, so it's not going to take you a whole hour to learn how to study better, how to put up a process for your score study and how to make sure that nothing is falling through the cracks. So again, click the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you soon. Now, please enjoy this episode of Podium Time. Welcome to Podium Time, the podcast for conductors and students. I do these classes live, and I remember I was with a a group of choir boys. I mean, they're being trained to sing very well, but they haven't been trained to listen. Afterwards, when we played it the second time, uh, well, they burst into applause, and this one kid said, it was much shorter. And I said to another kid, well, why did it seem shorter? And he said, because we noticed so much. That's it. Yeah. That's the commercial for what we do. So our challenge at this point is how many people can we reach, which is one reason we went to making television shows. Hi there, this is Jeremy, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Podium Time, featuring maestro George Mariner Mall, Artistic Director of the Discovery Orchestra. Today we're talking about how, through the Discovery Orchestra, Maestro Mall teaches audiences to actually listen to the music that's being played in front of them. You'd be surprised how many people are just sitting there hearing the music like they're at a restaurant, but not actually listening to it. So today we're talking exclusively about that. This is an abridged version of the interview to focus on the Discovery Orchestra and um, teaching audiences to listen. You can listen to the full unabridged interview over at our Patreon page. You do not have to be a supporter of our Patreon page. It just lives over there. But our patrons do get access to that unabridged interview one week before this episode hits the feed. So, if you'd like to join our Patreon and help support the podcast for as little as $1 a month, I'll put a link in the show notes, or you can hit the support button in your podcast player or website, and that'll take you over there to hear the full interview. Thanks so much for joining us today, and here is Maestro George Mariner Mall. Welcome to Podium Time today. We are pleased to be joined by Maestro George Mariner Mall. Maestro Mall, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for asking me to be with you. <laughs> We're so excited to uh, to talk to you about your um, your orchestra and your education programs and teaching people to actually listen to music. Um, but first, could you give us a brief overview of who you are and what you do? Foremost, I, I, I think of myself as a human being <laughs> <laughs> and a husband mm-hmm. and then perhaps a conductor. So that may give you some idea of my priorities. Mm-hmm. I think that's important that we have an identity that's very, very strong 
that may be separated from what we do in life. And then if if I read correctly, you, you ended up founding a professional orchestra in New exactly. Jersey as well? While I was with New Jersey Symphony, they helped to found the New Jersey Youth Symphony. Parents had come from central New Jersey to the NJSO and said, we want to form an orchestra for our brilliant children. Uh, we want them to have a wonderful experience in a youth orchestra. And they said, we can do that. And we'll give you our new assistant conductor. Now, of course, I knew nothing about this when I took the job. So when I was offered the job, Thomas Mahalik, the music director, said to me, well, of course, you could conduct a youth orchestra, couldn't you? I said, well, I'm, I think I probably could. Which one is it? And he said, it doesn't exist yet in his <laughs> Polish accent. I thought, what is this going to be? <laughs> Two trombones and one violin? I mean, you know, I just said, anyway, it got going. And it turned out to be this wonderful thing. And so after that year, I said to the parents, listen, NJSO is not going to be able to afford to finance this operation in any way. My advice to you, become your own 501c3 nonprofit. And if you want my services, fine. Or if you want to hire another conductor, do that. But definitely make yourself financially independent from the NJSO. So they did that. They hired me. And I stayed for the next 18 years. And it was during oh, wow. that. It was, but I thought, gee, I'd love to conduct a professional orchestra again. So I thought about taking auditions. But then I realized this thought. The freelancers that I play with in New York City play at such a high level. Mm-hmm. If I could start an orchestra with them as the members of the orchestra, even though we might not play very many times, we would play at a very high level. And so that's what I decided to do in 1987. I got some friends together and and they helped tremendously. Of course, it was a huge fundraising task, huge, to get the initial money to start up and then get it going and then keep it going. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. And that professional orchestra was called the Philharmonic Orchestra of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And we gave some wonderful concerts and got wonderful reviews and we're having a good time until... I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore, that I was more concerned with the fact that people don't listen to classical music and what could we do about this. And that began the next chapter of my life. So that sort of takes you up to the present moment. So So what, what, oh, I was going to say, what was, what was the moment where you kind of had that realization that, oh, people don't listen to classical music anymore? You know, what, what kind of triggered that for you? Okay, now this is what's really funny. I first noticed it at the choir school when I was nine. Yeah. And what happened was we would be singing some incredibly gorgeous piece of music by Palestrina or by Rachmaninoff or someone. And my eyes would be furtively checking out the congregation. And there are some people who were reading the church bulletin, obviously not listening. (laughs) Then there were other people who were asleep. (laughs) <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. as people do in church. And there were other people who looked like bored out of their minds. But there were some people who were absolutely riveted to the music. And so that was actually the moment. Mm-hmm. It's Luke. Is that right? Yes. Luke? Sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. No, no, no. No, it's okay. Uh, that was that was actually the, the moment when I realized that many people do not listen to music. Now, that was sort of tucked away in my brain Mm -hmm. for quite some time. And then I had time to think about it again at Lincoln High School when a gentleman who taught a class in music listening to the kids at that school Mm -hmm. 
uh, became my piano teacher and mentor. I learned everything about teaching music listening from this man, Saul Feinberg. But as far as making it the main emphasis of my life, well, actually it was in 1996 when the board of the Philharmonic Orchestra of New Jersey said to me, you give a course in how to listen to music. They said, could you do in a concert what you do in that course? Okay. And I said, sure. So in 1996, we did our first discovery concert, as we call them, Mm -hmm. in which the whole audience has a music listening lesson. And that's the whole point of the concert. There's nothing else but that activity. And it went over very well. The audience loved it, uh, except for one man who left who thought he was coming to a regular concert. And he was really annoyed. In any event, it went over well. And so then the board said, hey, you know, we should try to do this at least once a season, one concert at least should be one of these discovery concerts. And then and a visioning exercise, which maybe you've encountered or not yet, but when you're dealing with a board, they hire consultants to do visioning exercises as to what direction things should go. Mm-hmm. And so during a visioning exercise, uh, the consultant said, you know, hey, write down what you'd like to see happen if you just could do anything. And one of the board members wrote down, turn a discovery concert into a television show for public television. Well, when they prioritized them later in the meeting, that got the number one vote. And long story short, in 2002, we made our first production for American public television, Bach to the Future. And it went over very well. It got an Emmy nomination. By that time, we were on the path to the moment that you're looking for. And that is that in 2006, the board, the staff, and the donors all came to the conclusion, the most important thing we can do with this organization called the Philharmonic Orchestra of New Jersey is to change its name, change its mission, and from this point forward, do nothing but discovery concerts. Hmm. No more regular concerts. And we had done some Wonderful regular concert. One I remember particularly when we had Nadja Salerno Sonnenberg as the soloist. Mm-hmm. She did the Ravel Sagan on that performance, I remember. And we did the Fountains and Pines of Rome as one continuous piece after intermission. And we had started mm-hmm. the program with Copeland uh, Dances from Rodeo. Huge orchestra, 110 people. Wow. Cost us a fortune to produce. It was fun. But the point was, we realized there are lots of orchestras to listen to in the New York metro area. Yeah. I mean, you know, you go to Carnegie Hall, you go to Avery Fisher Hall, you go to New Jersey Performing Arts, and you can hear everybody from all over the world. We don't need to have us do this as much fun as it was. So therefore, let's focus all of our efforts on helping people how to listen to music. And that's what we've done since then. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, quite a few years of that activity at this point now from 2006. <laughs> uh, one of your questions I remember was, you know, have you recently changed your mind about something? Yeah. And, and that was the moment, really. I've been conducting for almost 50 years. And if you can count 2006 as reason, that was the biggest change for mm-hmm. all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that seed that was planted very, very long ago. Yeah, so long ago. Yeah somehow came to fruition yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so could you could you kind of walk us through one of these discovery concerts what's what's the format what does that look like for an audience member we begin by playing the piece of music at the beginning of the concert with no explanation whatsoever here it is folks 
and it's always short. It's a five to maybe 10 minute movement max, uh, and which again, restricts you, yeah. but there are a lot of things that can be played in five minutes. You play that movement for them, and then what happens is a series of exchanges between the podium and the audience. And there is one goal, to have them solve problems that can only be solved by listening to the next little excerpt that we play. Mm -hmm. So it might be, how many steps are there in this ascending sequence? Mm -hmm. Or it might be, raise your hands when the trombones enter. Or it might be, what happens after this crescendo? Now, we also give them a printed listening guide with numbered musical events for the piece of music, one through however many, 23, 25, whatever it is. And so at number two is where this crescendo occurs, or at number seven is where the trombones come in. So they're always referring to this guide, which has both small amount of verbiage and sometimes pictures, even sometimes little snippets of musical notation might actually have the theme that they're listening for. And so if they're going to answer how many times does this theme get played between number eight and number 10? I'd have to think about this. And the point is that if they have to answer this question, rather than my telling them, this is happening now, that's going to happen next, they will learn this infinitely better. And if they can physically respond in some way, that is all to the good. If they can chant the rhythm, if they can sing the melody, if they can get into this, they'll really remember this far mm -hmm. better, uh, which is why I still believe you can't write a book about how to listen to music. You can describe the process, you can talk about it, yeah. but unless you actually do it, and in this case, we give them a reason to do it that they can't avoid. And there's another important thing that has to happen in every Discovery concert, and that's to give everyone in the audience the opportunity to have an aha around the idea of whether they're actually listening or not. I see. Yeah. Because, as we know, most people don't listen. For lots of reasons. There are plenty of external things going on that can distract you, but the biggest distractor is the mental conversation that goes on in everyone's head all day, 24-7. Yep. It's only a matter of how high the volume level of that conversation is, but it's almost always on. And it could be anything from, I forgot to get the green beans when I was at the <laughs> supermarket, something silly like that, too. Yeah. Why did Marcia say that to me in that tone of voice? Mm -hmm. You know, And that kind of conversation can echo in your head for days after yeah. it happened. I mean, if you're having a conversation in your head in which you're thinking, you know, okay, I had this a confrontation with my boss yesterday. Okay, I've got to deal with this. Tomorrow I'm going to go in there and I'm going to talk to him. And so you're imagining what he will say and what you will say in response. If you take that into a concert hall, you can miss the entire first movement of a Beethoven symphony. Mm -hmm. Even though you're sitting in your seat, yeah. none of it will have entered into your brain it just was background. And yeah. of course, the absolute omnipresence of electronically reproduced music in our society, everywhere we go, from the supermarket, to the drugstore, to the doctor's office, to being on hold on phone, to watching a movie or a television show, there is background music everywhere. And it has trained generations of people who live in the industrialized world to ignore music. Mm -hmm. 
You can do an experiment in a restaurant, be sitting with friends and say, hey, how'd you like the last tune they played on the sound system? And some people will say, was there music playing? Yeah. <laughs> That's how unaware of me. It's like sonic wallpaper. Yeah. So the problem is, of course, someone like Brahms had the audacity to believe that we should listen to every sound that's created as it occurs in real time, one after the other, and they're all connected. It's as though he's giving us a speech. The problem is just there are no words to the speech. Mm -hmm. So in the concert, at some point, we will ask them a question which can't be answered because we play the wrong music on purpose. <laughs> Raise your hands when the violins play and the music goes on and on. The violins never play, you know, and I turn around. And so I didn't see any hands go up. For some people start snickering and laughing, but I use that as the opportunity to just briefly discuss the difference between listening mm -hmm. when you're fully present with sounds and when you're just hearing while yeah. you think about that awful conversation you have with your wife or whatever it is you're blocking out the music with. So mm -hmm. once people have that aha, it's so like, Oh, my gosh. And, of course, I've had people come up to me, say, I've been going to concerts for years. I, 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 I've never been listening. I said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I've been reading the program notes. I said, right, exactly. We know you have. I can see you out of my periphery. You know, you're sitting there thinking, the Wilsons gave that much money to the art center? I didn't know they had that much. And you just missed an incredible chord change that mm -hmm. Brahms made in his melody when it came back this time because you were thinking about contributors list, you know? Yeah. So once people have this aha, they, they know that they have a decision to make. Mm. They can either decide to give this music their undivided attention or not, as the case may be. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't ever have music in the background while you have dinner, whatever, fine, have it. But if you're going to go to a concert and pay money, or if you're going to sit with your earbuds on and listen to a piece of music, give it your undivided attention because yeah. that composer is trying to communicate some very vital emotional information to you, which can only be understood if you listen. And of course, once a person makes a decision to listen to them, well, what do you listen to? Yeah. And it's the details of the music. This is repeated three times. And of course, I always tell the people in the concerts, we don't give you this information so you can amaze friends at parties saying, oh my gosh, there's a sequence. That's not what we're trying to do. We want you to enjoy the sequence as mm -hmm. it happens. That's the point, that you get the emotional thrill of the crescendo or the subito piano or whatever is happening, that you notice various aspects of all of the elements of music from rhythm to melody to harmony to texture, dynamics, form, everything that you can notice. And our brains are perfectly capable of taking in that information while it's happening. But mm -hmm. people just haven't thought about it. Okay, we've gotten three quarters of the way through the Discovery concert. And now it's time to play the piece again, mm -hmm. straight through. And we encourage them to follow their listening guides. Now, uh, if we're doing a live concert and not a televised concert, we have the numbers of the listening guide projected behind the orchestra oh, yeah. so that people can keep their place in the music. I can't even tell you how many times people have said to me, it sounded like a completely different piece of music the second time. Well, of course. I mean, I, you didn't hear it the first time. That's right. You didn't listen. <laughs> you didn't listen time. to it the first yeah, time. You yeah. heard it, but didn't listen. You know, you were thinking about the green beans or whatever. And I do these classes live with kids in school settings. 
And I remember I was with a, a group of choir boys. There's a choir school in Newark, which I have a strong emotional identification with because I went to one of these places, you know, and these boys are very, very sharp performers. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're being trained to sing very well, but they haven't been trained to listen from an aesthetic standpoint. They've learned to listen. Am I in tune? Am I in rhythmic sync with everybody else? But just to listen for their own pleasure hasn't really been broached. So anyway, I remember we were doing Handel's Overture to the Royal Fireworks Music. And so we played it the first time. And the kids, you know, they were polite, quiet. Maybe they were listening. Maybe they weren't. So afterwards, when we played it the second time, they burst into applause. I said, was it different? This one kid said, yes, it was much shorter. And of course... We know it was the exact same length of time. And I said to another kid, well, why did it seem shorter? And he said, because we noticed so much. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. That's the commercial for what we do, mm-hmm. you know, that, that mm-hmm. we know it's effective and it works. So our challenge at this point is how many people can we reach, which is one reason we went to making television shows. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, I, I think, one of the reasons that comes to mind why it might be shorter is when and and it relates to to everything that you're doing is that when you know when you're listening to a piece and you're just kind of it's just happening you know there's all this information and you have no way to organize it but what you're giving them i think is you're giving them labels to organize it for themselves so that when they hear a sequence now they have a name for it and now they can identify that and it's not just a wash of sound happening. yeah right and and hopefully Mm -hmm. they can feel its effect you know, mm-hmm. because sequence adds tension, ascending sequence adds yeah. tension to a passage. And so if you can feel that tension building, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, if they do this enough on mm-hmm. their own, they will be able to listen to pieces of music without listening guides yeah. and without thinking about things, just notice things as they happen. And as they listen to more and more and, and get more into into the repertoire, you know, then they see the differences between the different symphonies of Beethoven. So oh, absolutely. You, you give them the big chunks and then they can continue digging deeper and deeper and deeper and they for the do. rest of their lives. I, I can't tell you how many people have written us since 1996, when we uh-huh. did our first Discovery concert, that we had changed their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it just it right. was like a whole new world that opened up for them that they just didn't know was there before. Yeah. Do you find with some of them that just taking this, you know, course in course, I guess you could say in listening, does it affect how they perceive and listen to music outside of the classical realm as well? I encourage them. You know, I said, all the music in your life will never sound the same as you start Mm -hmm. to listen to it carefully, whether it's a popular song Uh, a rock song, a rap song, whether it's jazz. And of course, jazz for me is another big concern. It's an incredible art form and it's ignored. Most people don't enjoy it. They don't don't know anything about it. It's just background. Just background. And and when you go to hear jazz at the club, (laughs) there are people talking, drinking, eating. You know, it drives me insane. I almost can't stand to go to a jazz club because Mm. the other customers annoy the crap out of me. Yeah. They're not listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I think a lot of a lot of the you know people talk about they debate about concert etiquette. You know, should you have a cell phone at a concert? Should you have pamphlets at a concert? You know, and I think if, right. if we can fix the attention issue so that the entire audience is actively listening, 
So that would automatically fix a lot of those, you know, typical audience issues that a lot of people have because people aren't going to have to be situating in their chairs and opening their mints and, you know. (laughs) Right. Well, the the thing is, the reason that they're doing these things is because they are bored. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because these abstract sounds with no words, I mean, you have to realize that for 99% of the human population on the planet, the only genre of music that exists is song with words i mean it drives you crazy you go on apple music and you have to buy a song to buy a schubert symphony you know it's listed as a song and it's not a song but the point is that if you asked a kid who's i don't know 14 would you listen to this five minutes of music by mozart now it's really powerful but it hasn't got any words you'd likely get responsible if it doesn't have any words how can it be any good yeah. You know, music can't be any good if it doesn't have words. But so people who are bored unwrapping their candies, looking at their cell phones, reading the contributors list, checking the audience for attractive people, maybe you can hook up with at intermission. There's so many things you can be doing at a concert where there are lots of people. But the thing is that if you have learned to listen, that will be so utterly fascinating to you. You won't want to take your attention off it until it's finished, until it's mm-hmm. complete. Yeah. This makes me think that one of one of the other issues with people not listening is that what we do is a little un it's I mean it's not I think it's more than a little it's very unnatural like our default is these kind of short songs you know even even any any songs that you know not just what's on the radio but you know not more than a couple minutes you know it is a big ask to ask people to to sit for this 45 minute symphony but right even in its movement chunks yeah. of five or 10 minutes, whatever, you know, it's, that's a long listen, but it's, it's very unnatural. I think a lot for the time. I think a lot of, a lot of that too comes down to the fact that, you know, the, everything in our world right now is so easy to digest. It has to be like super simple and to the point. And that's, and words, words make that easy, you know, because when you're telling someone what to think, they don't have to think for themselves. And you know, whatever that, whatever that feeling is that is being conveyed in the song, then they can just feel it. Whereas when you're listening to classical music, I think a lot of times in order to really appreciate what you're hearing, you know, you're, you have to connect it to something somewhere and you're not being told what to do. And so for the first time you have to think for yourself and that's really scary. (laughs) And a lot of people don't know what to do. (laughs) People are incredibly intimidated by the idea of coming into a concert hall and basically thinking, I don't know what to listen for. I, I don't know what's happening here. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of nervous about this. But the point is, we know from our experiences, and I know from the experience of my mentor, Saul Feinberg, that you can teach people to do this. Yeah. I feel that the only societal cure would be for there to, <laughs> this is one of these, if I were king thoughts, <laughs> if I could mandate what happens in the classroom. When Saul was teaching in Philadelphia before he retired, the state of Pennsylvania back in those dinosaur days of the 1950s and 60s had a requirement in the curriculum that said every student must have two periods a week for two years of what is called general music in grades eight and nine. Mm -hmm. Okay, two periods a week for two years of something called general music. What other teachers did with that time, I have no idea for sure. Although I'm sure some of them took out songbooks and made these 
overstimulated teenagers sing things like Go Tell Aunt Rhody, which must have driven them totally out of their minds, you know. But Saul took these two periods a week and said, okay, I am turning this into a two-year music listening course. And at the end of that time, hopefully, some percentage of these kids will have become very perceptive music listeners, whatever they choose to listen to. And he documented his results with surveys. I'll give you one example of what happened to the culture of this working class neighborhood high school in Philadelphia, where Mm -hmm. Saul taught. After he'd been there about 15 years, the president of the student council, not a teacher, not a parent, not the principal, a kid who was the president of the student body, wrote to the Philadelphia Orchestra and asked if they would come and play a concert at Lincoln (laughs) High School for them. And when the Philadelphia Orchestra got this letter, they had never received such a request from a student before. So they came and played a concert, which just shows you how much one person can affect this unbelievable attitudinal change in kids. And, mm-hmm. and as I said, he documented it with anonymous surveys yeah. that he would take of his students. So they didn't fear any peer pressure or risk of uh, being exposed for having admitted <laughs> that they enjoyed listening to Brock Maninoff's Second Symphony. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I've always been disappointed that uh, music appreciation classes are not really about music appreciation. They're like they're basically just like music history classes. If you're going to be working with the general population, if you're given that opportunity, teach them to listen. Yeah. If I have an issue at night, it's going to sleep knowing that 5% or less of the U.S. population listens to either classical music or jazz on a regular basis. And 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 solely that activity, not as background. Because people tell me, oh, I have music on in our office all the time. The classical station's (laughs) playing in our office. Great. Yeah. (laughs) Not great. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, teach people to listen. Yeah. And if we did that, uh, over time, we could stop worrying about filling concert halls because people would want to be there yeah. for the right reason. Yeah, not just... I, I was surprised when you said that the the uh, audience members just had come and just never listen. They're just always just sitting there reading reading the pamphlet. And well, I you have, asked, the, case, like, you you have the case of the music lover attached to the non-music lover. I a, see, a, yeah. A, a relationship situation <laughs> and the the one party drags the other to concerts for like 20 years i've had many men come up to me and say my wife was dragging me to concerts forever you know and i i'm so glad i came tonight i had no idea what this was about 1997 when we gave a discovery concert that year we surveyed the audience afterwards and the funniest comment was from this guy who wrote I never recall in my life being in the men's room during intermission and hearing all these men excitedly talking about how wonderful this concert was. Said it never happened before in the men's room at intermission. (laughs) I thought, yes, yes, we we got through to them. I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. What what are the most effective pieces that you use for these discovery concerts? Like I'm I'm guessing Beethoven five. Um, and I think uh, you mentioned Dvorak 9, and that's one that is often used for for these kind of walking people through music, con- just because it's so it's so motivic and, and melodic. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, the last movement is an yeah. incredibly powerful piece of music. I've used almost anything. 
But it's always a piece of music that I love. Mm-hmm. That first television show on the Bach Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Four, the third movement. Mm-hmm. Many people might think cerebral or whatever, I, you know. But the fact is, it is also a very effective piece of music, partly because of its fugal structure. Yeah. People have never even thought about following an idea through a piece of music like that. And, oh my gosh, here it is again. Oh, that was only part of it. Oh, they stopped it before it finished. They, they begin to get into this yeah. incredible ability of Bach to sort of mathematically construct a piece of music, which at the same time, so upbeat and optimistic a piece yeah. of music, which we need. We need mm-hmm. a lot of that right now. But you, you can use almost anything. And again, in terms of the format of a discovery concert or a lecture, it almost doesn't matter which details we choose to show them. Okay. Almost any detail would do. Yeah. It's it, <laughs> the whole idea of even noticing such things is so new to them. Yeah. It's like, oh my heavens, a fermata. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, it's like <laughs> I think actually held this note on purpose. You know. Yeah. I think one of the one of the most effective ones I could think of is is to identify what type of texture is going on. I think oh, that yes. gives them a way to organize what's happening at any one point, regardless of what happened before or after. Absolutely. Again, a perceptive listener over time can immediately recognize whether we're having monophonic texture, polyphonic texture, homophonic texture. You respond to all chords or different strands of melodies happening at the same time or, or just unison. I bring mm-hmm. up unison many times. When I did the Beethoven television show, I, I added chords to the opening. Chords, you know, it just sounded so yucky. And I turned around and asked the audience, what do you think? And somebody went, yeah. You know, <laughs> I said, right. So Beethoven realized the strength in a unison textural statement. Mm-hmm. And I said, and you will notice after you begin listening all the time that composers just with the greatest of ease change texture within yeah. one piece of music. And it always means something emotionally. It has has power. And that change is not something that happens so much in pop music. You've got you've got the one short song with one with one um you know, emotion going on one invention and usually the, a very similar texture throughout but then we have multiple themes and we have longer pieces where there's more compositional intention and that's when those different textures really <laughs> stand out you know mm-hmm. absolutely i don't know if i'm being of help to young conductors i guess if during your career you have any opportunity to teach people how to listen to music <laughs> You should grab it with all of your might mm-hmm. and get into it. It's wonderful to conduct a piece of music, as we know. It's wonderful to have an orchestra play an incredible piece of music. But for me, at this point, it's even more wonderful to let people in on the secret, yeah. to help more people get into this, than to have me conduct my interpretation of fill in the blank, whatever it is. I guess that's the big switch at 2006, Luke, yeah. when I gave myself over to. This is what I have to do with whatever tread life I've got on my tires before I <laughs> I wonder if there's any way to um, incorporate this a little bit more into the normal concert experience that we have. What do you think about that? Well, one can, certainly. I think that any opportunity that you get to do a little bit of this is, is good. 
I just think that for it to have its greatest impact, you sort of need to focus on this for like an hour. Yeah. Now, I can do it in a half an hour if I have to, and I have. The Discovery Orchestra has a two-times-a-month radio show now on the Classical Music Station in Princeton, New Jersey, and it's a half-an-hour show. So I am forced to do this in 30 minutes, which is not as much fun for me. I mean, I feel like a five-minute movement does very well in an hour's treatment. But yeah. yes, you, you can do these things. It's just that if it, if it at all seems superficial to the audience, I mean, I've gone to concerts when there's a new piece on the program and the conductor said, okay, this is a new piece. Now listen to this little part here. This is this little part here. This is that little part there. Okay. And then at the end, we're going to do this. Well, okay. But half the people still may not have made a decision to listen. Yeah. More, probably more than half. Yeah, maybe more than half, especially if it's a challenging piece of music to listen to. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. it kind of reminds me, there was one time uh, in our undergrad, Jeremy and I uh, road trip to Tulsa to see Benjamin Zander conduct was, yeah, Mahler 2 <laughs> and, you know, talk about a big right. piece of music. And he, you know, the first 45 minutes of the concert, he actually, you know, dedicated to um basically you know what you do he broke down the work and you know the various important things to listen right. to and actually had the orchestra play you know portions of the right. work and talked about like why yada yada and then you know there was a the break and then non-stop performance all the way through it was a quiet hall <laughs> but i mean it was Mahler, so chances are a lot of the people yeah. who were going were uh knew what they were getting already into. Addicted. yeah <laughs> yeah but um but yeah like well, the thing is that, again, the, you know, there are lots of ways to do this, and there are lots of people doing what I do, but I use Saul's methodology, okay. which I feel has the most profound effect on the participants. It's a matter of, of educational philosophy. Saul said problem solving mm. is the best way to learn anything. He's spent much time reading the psychology of learning and studying it before he devised his course in listening. So he, he was already pretty, pretty much convinced that if people have to solve problems, the information will really stay in there after it's yeah. over. Whereas if you just tell people, here's this part, play it. Here's this part, we'll play it for you. Without their having to answer questions or raise their hands. I don't know if you've seen any of our television shows, but the most recent one that's out there, Discover the Firebird, which is still being shown around the country, at a certain point, I asked the whole audience, as the crescendo gets louder, to slowly rise up out of your chair until you're completely standing. Or if you're not physically able to do that, just raise your arms over your head slowly. And the thing is that the audience loves to do things like that, but they will never forget the impact of a crescendo mm -hmm. now. They'll never forget it. And they're not going to get to do that in a regular concert. No, they're not going to do that in a regular concert. And they're not going to do it if I just tell them there's a crescendo there and play yeah. it for them. Yep. Yeah. It's So it's methodology, I think, is important mm -hmm. in this process. Yeah. yeah, there's a big difference between the lecturing and, I mean, and we've making all them been, experience it. What else? Well, there are things I want to tell you about conducting. I was fortunate enough when the League of American Orchestras was called the American Symphony Orchestra League, its mm -hmm. old name, they, they had a conducting program for American conductors during the summers. It's led by a gentleman named Richard Johannes Lert, L-E-R-T. 
Richard Johannes Lehrt was an Austrian conductor and violinist who had studied and played under Arthur Nikisch and Richard Strauss for two. So his creds were pretty big. <laughs> and his scores were filled with notations in German that said things like, Tchaikovsky told Nikisch, who told me, that he wanted these bars always not played in the Fifth Symphony because he hated them so much and he had begged the publisher to take them out. How would you get this kind of information from anybody yeah. but someone like Richard Laird, you know? <laughs> but in any event, Laird was 93 when I studied with him in 1979 and he died the next year. So that was his last summer of doing this. And I don't think the program continued after he died. But that summer, 10 of us had been selected nationally to study with him. And there was an orchestra assembled, the professional musicians from all over the country. It was a wonderful orchestra. These, these were people who, who played in orchestras that didn't have summer seasons. Mm. And for room and board only, they sat there and played just to listen to what this man had to say yeah. about music. Things like Tchaikovsky told Nikish, who told me, that kind of thing. And, and there were many others. But anyhow, the first session we ever had with Dr. Laird, we're sitting there, and I'm sure that we were all hoping at this moment he would reveal to us the secret of conducting. And he may actually have, because what he said was, when you stand on the podium at the first rehearsal of a concert, don't say anything. He said, just quietly scan the orchestra. Maybe look at the first oboes. And with your eyes, say to the first oboes, what wonderful thing do you have to give to this piece of music in your playing? That's what you need to transmit to the players. Mm. If I were to have a billboard or a controversial idea about conducting, the idea is simply this. It's not about us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's a collaborative event. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's another reason why I wish all young conductors played in professional orchestras before they started conducting. Because then you get a sense of what it is to be on the other side of the podium. You get a sense of what it feels like to give a certain kind of a gesture, what it elicits from you or not, as the case may be, or what kind of a gesture not to give to an orchestra, you know? <laughs> Dr. Laird's whole thing was that this group of highly educated, highly trained musicians all have something to say about this music. Yeah. Somehow you have to make them feel that what they, even the last stand second violinist, has to say is important in this performance. And I would say that from my years of playing in symphony orchestras, some of the greatest performances that I ever was part of playing in the viola section were performances where the conductor had the whole orchestra cooking with gas because they all felt like they were important and yeah. giving something to this moment, yeah. rather than the conductors who put their foot on the orchestra's neck at the beginning of the first rehearsal and don't take it off until the last note has been sounded, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, it's no fun. It's just, it's no fun. You may play, but not with a whole lot of yourself in it. You know, yeah. it's like being held hostage. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would put on my billboard. It's not about us for conductors yeah. and conducting <laughs> students to drive past every day. That makes me think, um, do you ever get a chance to teach the audience to hear like the difference between two performances. Do you ever play something slightly different and have them hear the same music, but differently? Oh, yeah. 
one of the jobs that I have is to give the lectures at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center before the visiting orchestras. And in those circumstances, I have sometimes taken a passage that listen to it this way. Okay, now listen to this performance. Mm -hmm. It's like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Such Perfect. a difference. Yeah. Well, Maestro Mal, thank you so much for joining us today. Any any other things you wanted to to um, to touch on before Luke? Check out Jesse Montgomery, the composer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've got the score to banner on its way to me. It should be here in a couple days. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> and you say, are we looking forward to anything? Our next television show has been set to record on September 2022. And oh, yeah. that one's going to be on the finale of the Organ Symphony. By oh, Sassan. great. <gasps> oh, such a good piece. <laughs> I try to pick pieces that if someone who's flipping channels, who doesn't like classical music, goes, wow, what is that? Try to catch flies with powerful pieces like that. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Well, Maestro Mal, thanks so much for joining us. This is this has been a uh, this has been a delight, and I hope um, yes. <laughs> hope everyone goes off and, and checks out. I was able to watch the uh, the Box of the Future. Um, oh, good. Discovery. Yeah, I'll go. I'll check out the others, and everybody check out check those out. I know they're on. Um, I know they're on they're, Amazon. Right. They're on Amazon. Yeah. 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 All best and good fortune for both of you. It's an incredible profession. Um, yeah. <laughs> with its ups and downs, it's I wouldn't do anything else. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. The work you're doing is so important. Yes. <laughs> thank absolutely. you. Well, we think it is, too. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Podium Time. You can find everything in the show notes below. And please reach out if you have any suggestions for guests or improvements to the podcast. We're always striving to make Podium Time the best podcast that we can for you conductors and students. So send us a Facebook message or use the contact page on our website with any suggestions you may have. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next time. Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony was performed by the Czech National Symphony Orchestra, and Beethoven's Egmont Overture was performed by Stefano Ligorati. Thank you.